guys tonight, but I'm very happy to be here, and I'm very excited uh, that Drew has given me the opportunity to continue the People of the Promise series, and tonight we are going to be looking at Rahab specifically. We'll be in Joshua chapter 2, uh, 2 through uh, 23. If you guys uh, follow along in the Bible, you can go ahead and bring that up. I actually, though, uh, you don't have to turn to this passage. I actually want to start in the book of Acts, though, which may be surprising. But I want to share with you two of my favorite verses in Scripture. It's Acts 17, 26 through 27. And I love these verses because they really uh, challenge the way that I view God interacting in my life and the way that I read God interacting in the lives of others in Scripture. Let me just read these passages to you as we get started. Acts 17, 26 through 27 And it says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him, yet He's not far from each one of us. I just find these verses really compelling when you start thinking about what they're teaching. And to me, they're like worldview verses because they have the potential to shape the way that we think of And we understand God's role in the affairs of humanity. In Acts 17, uh, we, we see displayed God's hands at work. God is busy guiding and directing all events according to his purposes. We glimpse God's sovereignty, his absolute control over all things, including our birth date and our home address, which I think is pretty cool. We, these ideas even emphasize God's control over the history of salvation over uh, the history of nations and individuals, but I think also God's ability to bring about his purposes in our world and in our individual lives. So I just find these verses very compelling. In Acts 17, we also glimpse God's providence or the idea that God is actively involved in the affairs of the world, but specifically in our lives. He's guiding us and he's directing our circumstances. He's He's directing events to his determined good end. And depending on who you are, that idea is either very comforting or very frightening. But when we think about a story like we're going to look at tonight, when we look at a story like Rahab, I find this idea from Acts 17 to be very comforting. Uh, Because tonight we're going to look at an example of God's sovereignty and providence in salvation history, in the life of the Hebrew people, and in the life of a very unlikely hero named Rahab. And we're going to learn three hopeful truths this evening. First, that God saves people with a past. Second, that God uses people with a past. And then finally, that God redeems people with a past. And so guys, our God truly is the God of second chances. And oh, would you join in with me as I say, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that that is true. Now, as we reflect on the story of Rahab tonight, I invite you to take comfort in the knowledge that God is always at work, bringing about his plans and purposes for his people, and that includes me, and that includes you as well. And so let's go ahead and get started with the first point this evening. God saves people with a past. Let's look in verse number one. <clears throat> the, uh, the chapter is just too long for me to read all at once, so we will walk through the story as we move along tonight. And let's take just a moment with verse number one, which says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. 
And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So we want to start by just considering for a moment who Rahab is. And Scripture makes the point immediately. We see that Rahab is a prostitute. Now, based on what we know about the social and cultural norms of that time period, life for a woman like Rahab would have been difficult. I'm sure it would have been extremely challenging, even in a city like Jericho, even in a city that's filled with people that are known for extreme sinfulness, Rahab likely would have been considered on the moral bottom of their society. Now, we want to talk about her, but to to put her story in the proper context, let's zoom out for just a moment and remember the larger context of of where her story fits in the Scripture. Uh, You guys will remember that God had promised the patriarchs, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he had he had promised this land to, uh, to them like years before. And, this, and Joshua now was about to invade this land. And he said this was going to belong to their descendants. He had promised victory for them. It was guaranteed because God was going to fight on behalf of the Hebrew people. And in fact, in way of preparation, God had spent the last 40 years preparing his people to spiritually live in the land that he was about to give them. See, God was doing something. He was going to demand their holiness. And specifically, God was going to demand a holiness that was going to stand in contrast to the wickedness that we see in the people currently living in Jericho. So God's purpose in this forthcoming war, as Joshua was about to invade, God's purpose was twofold. He was going to fulfill this promise to the patriarchs and give his people the land but he was also going to send judgment on the sinful inhabitants of Jericho. and In fact, of the whole land. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2, God says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and he clears away many nations before you, nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, And you'll show them no mercy. See, God was promising victory, but he was also going to expect complete destruction of these people. He he was telling uh, the Hebrew people, you could not allow anyone to escape, nor could you be friendly with any of the current inhabitants of the promised land. Because God's plan was for the Hebrew people to establish themselves in the land and to live in holiness to live in obedience to his laws and his commandments as an example to a sinful world, as a beacon of hope and a testimony of what the true God of heaven and earth could do. And by contrast, the people who lived in the land, they had long since rejected God. And they had come under his judgment. In particular, in this story, we hear of the Canaanites who were living in Jericho. Now, the Canaanites were descendants um, of Noah's grandson, Canaan, uh, who was born of Noah's son, Ham. In fact, many of these wicked nations that Joshua would drive out were descendants of Ham. So you will remember earlier in Scripture, after the flood, Noah had planted a vineyard. And when the vineyard grew, he made wine, and he drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and he made a mistake, and he fell asleep, and he fell asleep naked. And one of his sons, Ham, saw him 
And he mocked his father. He laughed at him. And he pulled his brothers over and said, look at dad. And they were, they were ashamed and, and they wanted to honor their dad. So they took a blanket, right? And they stood backwards and they took the blanket and they covered their father. They covered over uh, his, his shamefulness. Um, and their brother, however, had been so disrespectful to their dad. So when Noah came to his senses, he learned of Ham's disrespect and he had cursed him. And something must have happened. A divide must have happened in the family at that moment. Because after that point in history, the descendants of Ham and the descendants of Canaan became wicked people. When you follow their storyline through Scripture, you increasingly see them walking away from God. In fact, in Genesis 15, 16, God told Abraham that before his descendants would enter the promised land, they would have to remain slaves in Egypt for 400 years before they took possession of Canaan. And the reason was because uh, the iniquity of the Amorites had not yet become complete. And so God was showing this great patience in dealing with the Canaanite sin, but it was going to take time before judgment was to come upon them. And uh, he had, and, until they got to the point of no return. Now, in particular, in our story this evening, the people of Jericho uh, had become pretty wicked. Like, if you study this, you'll see they were, they were considered sort of vile. Uh, they were idolaters. They were sinners. They had practiced all types of evil. And I think there's times when we're reading the Old Testament and we see, uh, we see God... Uh, come to a moment like this where he's going to send this type of punishment where he says, wipe them out. And, and we're thinking to ourselves, well, gosh, maybe God's a little bit harsh here, right? Like, if only he had given them a chance to repent, right? Like, I mean, forget the 400 years and really 400 plus 40 years that he had waited. It's, it's easy for us to think if God had only just been patient with them, maybe they would have come to a point of repentance. And this type of thinking reminds me of C.S. Lewis when he he kind of quotes John Milton's Paradise Lost, and he says this. He says, The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. So the Old Testament seems to suggest that there are some people, maybe like the Canaanites, who would rather have power and control over their own lives, even if it means being in a very bad and dangerous situation, if the alternative is submission to God's rule and authority. So in essence, what we see in Jericho is God using Joshua to deliver judgment on a people who have become so wicked that even if God had presented them an opportunity to repent and to turn from their sins, they would have rejected it. They would have, they would have no desire to find peace with God. See, these people, they hated the true God. They loved only their idols, which are gods of their own making. And we all know that's just another way of saying they loved themselves. Um, and their hatred was a danger to the story of salvation that God was beginning to tell through the Hebrew people. And actually, we know that the Canaanites would reject that opportunity because stories of God's goodness had come to them, right? They had heard about everything God had done for his people and how he had brought them out of Egypt and fought for them. He, they had heard stories of what he had done in the desert, and they rejected these stories, everybody except for one person. And so it's in the midst of all of this vileness and this hatred of God that we are introduced to a woman named Rahab. Uh, 
And up to this point in her story, there really are no redeeming qualities in her life. Instead, her very profession itself tends to suggest to us that perhaps she had joined in and embraced the godless lifestyle of her fellow citizens. In fact, Pastor John MacArthur had written this about her. He said, Rahab made her living off of that culture's insatiable appetite for unbridled debauchery, catering to the most debased appetites of the very dregs of society. Yes, it's hard to imagine a less likely candidate for biblical honor than Rahab. Yet what we will see is that she stands in contrast to their evil hearts. She is likely a woman who by some type of financial necessity and very few options became enslaved in a very unhappy and seemingly hopeless situation. But this is where we begin to see God's sovereignty work. And this is where we begin to learn how he will use even a prostitute's situation to work out his holy will. See, Scripture shows us not only that Rahab was struggling uh, with sexual immorality, but there was also, also another problem that we learned about Rahab. Scripture shows us that Rahab was also a liar. And Rahab seemed quite comfortable and convincing in her lying. Lying actually was probably a necessary sin for someone in Rahab's profession. Certainly situations would have arisen that would require her to be discreet or cunning Um, And maybe even convincing. Let's look at in verses 3 through 5 for just a moment. And we'll see uh, the king of Jericho had learned that the spies had come into the land. And so he sends some representative to Rahab's home. And he says, and we see here, the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who've come to you, who entered your house, for they've come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and she had hidden them. Can we go to the next slide, please? And then she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. And so here we see a representative from the king of Jericho come at night to request information about Joshua's spies. Now likely this isn't the first nighttime visitor knocking on Rahab's door requiring her to be less than honest about men visiting her home. And the point is this, that Rahab seems extremely comfortable dealing with this falsehood. And she seemingly has little trouble coming up with a story that would convince the officials to believe her. And surprisingly, despite her position, they do believe her. Let's look at verses 6 through 7 for just a moment. She says to them, pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and she had hidden them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on her roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. See, these men had believed her story and took her suggestions. It's kind of interesting. Like, why didn't they just barge in and demand that we're going to search for the spies? Why didn't they just go in? They, we know they're here. They could have just come in and they could have found them. But instead, Rahab was convincing enough. Not only did they believe her, her lies, they took her suggestions and they pursued after these men. <laughs> so it's interesting. It worked. And I guess as I'm reading through this, the question I ask myself is, how comfortable am I with this? Right? 
I think it's easy to overlook Rahab's lies for the sake of moving on to the more redeeming elements of the story. Um, But I think a quick pause here is really important for the application that we want to pull out this evening. Because scripture sometimes presents us a few examples where we have to wrestle with lying being used to bring about something positive. Like, you know, there's stories in scripture where this happens. We have to wrestle sometimes with the idea of lying as acceptable. But that's difficult to do because we know, uh, we know that it's not, right? We know that the ninth commandment prohibits bearing false witness. And we know that in Proverbs, lying is listed as one of the seven abominations that the Lord hates. And so it's true that we see in Scripture, lying is a sin. And yet, in Scripture, we also see uh, that it's true that sometimes God is using a person despite their struggle with sin. Right? So to grasp the point here, I think it's helpful for us to remember a truth. Those of us who are in Christ, right? if we are in Christ, every single one of us is a sinner saved by grace. Right? If we are in Christ, every one of us is a former coward or a murderer or a blasphemer or an adulterer or a thief or a liar or a sinner of some type. Right? 1 John 1.9 reminds us, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's because our God is a God of second chances. So we look at the Canaanites who lived in Jericho and they practiced terribly wicked customs. It was so horrible. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we learned that they attempted to cast spells to call the dead up from the grave. Like we learned that they would burn their sons and daughters in fire as a sacrifice to false gods. They were so terrible that in Deuteronomy 12.30, God said the land could no longer stomach their violence and they would be vomited out of the land. This is how terrible they were. But much like us, rejecting the pagan culture around us, Rahab had not fully embraced the culture's wickedness. In Rahab, we are beginning to see the picture of someone who looks less like the culture around her and more like a believer in the one true God. This is the story of a woman in transition. For example, notice her observations about God uh, when she's speaking with the spies in verses 9 through 11. She says this, she says, I know the Lord God has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above And on the earth beneath. See she says the Lord. right? Rahab is showing a belief in the existence of Jehovah. And here she's beginning to confess that belief to the spies. She says he is the God in heaven above. And on the earth below. Well that's interesting. Those are the words of Moses. Those are the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 4. Now we know that 
She's saying, like, these stories have come to us, so we know she's heard about him. But where she heard these specific words of Moses, I'm not sure where she heard those, but it's clear that Rahab believes them. Like, she's starting to have faith in this. And despite her sin struggle, her faith stands in contrast to the unbelieving inhabitants of sinful Jericho. See, the story of Rahab proves to us that God can save even those with a past. So no one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. And that is hopeful for us. So no matter how sinful or unworthy we may feel, we are not beyond God's saving grace. And so just a few questions for us to consider for a moment. Do you believe your sin is keeping you from a relationship with Christ? Because it can, right? If we are not in Christ, if we are unbelievers, our sin is keeping us from a relationship with Christ. That is true. But if we are in Christ, do we struggle with unworthiness? Does that unworthiness keep us from seeking God? See, we are unworthy, and we certainly are unworthy if Christ has not saved us. But because He has saved us, we no longer have to live in unworthiness. We are found worthy through Christ. So instead, we want to put off this unworthiness and we want to put on gratefulness. When was the last time that you chose to reflect on gratefulness instead of unworthiness? And what difference could that make in your relationship with Christ? What type of thankfulness could that produce within you? Because God saves those with a past. And so that's encouraging, but there's actually something even more encouraging for us to learn from this story this evening. And that's that God not only saves people with a past, but he uses people with a past. Uh, So let's look back for just a minute at verse number one. And I think one of the questions I kept asking myself is, why did the spies end up at Rahab's house to begin with, right? Well, we see in verse number one, Joshua sends the spies for very specific reasons. He says to them, go view the land, especially Jericho. So he wants them to check out the land, and he especially wants a report back on Jericho. Uh, But they go, and they end up in Rahab's house. So why is that? Well, as I was reading this, there's lots of thoughts, right? Lots of uh, biblical teachers and commentators and Uh, A a lot of commentators have a lot of suggestions, but there's two potential reasons that you will read about. First, the location of her home would have been strategic to their mission. And then second, some people are suggesting maybe these men might have been seeking Rahab's services. Now, I'm just saying consider this for just a moment, right? We're looking at Joshua 2.1. And in Joshua 2.1, the the author writes that Joshua sent the spies from Shittim. Now, this seems to be a very uh, significant reference because in Numbers 25, while Israel was camping in Shittim, we learned that the men fell prey to sexual immorality with women of foreign descent. Like this is what was happening when Moses camped with the, with, uh, the Israelites in Shittim. Now, this reference I don't think would have been lost on early readers of the text. Shittim is possibly mentioned to remind the people of the dangers of sexual immorality, especially since the spies went straight to the home of a sexually immoral woman of foreign descent. So that's interesting. But it also seems interesting to note, like if we looked back to Joshua 1, 16 through 17, the people just swore to Joshua. They just told him, whatever you command us, we will do. 
And wherever you send us, we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Which I mean is kind of laughable, right? Because we remember how much trouble Moses actually had with these people obeying him and obeying God. Right? But here we are, and immediately in chapter 2, we see Joshua give a command. He says, go, spy out the land, have a look. And uh, instead, they go to a prostitute's home. And so I find that interesting. Now again, it's possible that the author was simply just trying to draw our attention, to draw the reader's attention to the sinful and the hypocritical nature of these people. And from a greater context of the story, it really is probably right to conclude that the author wasn't implying they sought Rahab for her services, but instead the author was purposely attempting to make us feel a little bit of unease in this chapter in an attempt to remind us of the seductive natures of this land that the people were about to enter, right? After all, God told Moses in Deuteronomy 31 that once these people enter the land, they're going to quickly prostitute themselves to foreign gods of the land. So this was promised, like this was expected. And so I think the author is reminding us of these things. And all of this, I believe, is to remind the reader of who the true story of this hero is in the first place. Because we know the ultimate hero is God, right? He's weaving his tale of redemption. He's, he's using all of this to bring about his purposes. But separate from God, if we had to choose a hero, and we were going to choose characters that we're talking about tonight, and here we have the two spies, the two unnamed spies, who probably appears did very little, little notable spying, right? And then you have... Rahab, um, who demonstrates a faith in God uh, and is sovereignly positioned to help uh, to save the spies and her own family from destruction. Who looks more like a hero in the story? Right? I mean, I think these answers are clear for us. God even uses people with a past. And so if that's true, how do we see God actually using Rahab? Well, there's a few ways. First, he's positioned her to be helpful. We can look at verse 15, and we learn that her house was built into the city wall. And then in verse 6, we learn that she took the spies to the roof to hide them. And so her house is positioned on the wall. It's the roof of the wall, so she's on top of the wall. That's strategic. That would be helpful. Uh, Joshua wanted them to spy out the, the land, specifically Jericho. Certainly he would want to report on the main defense in Jericho, which would have been the wall. And so in that sense, Rahab is positioned to be helpful. Um, but, uh, but also, um, she's positioned to, for these spies to make a quick nighttime escape. If they got caught, if they were in trouble, they could quickly make an escape as we see happens. Rahab lets the spies down by a rope through her window. So God has sovereignly positioned Rahab to be a help. She has positioned her address and the location of her dwelling to be helpful in this moment. Second, we see that Rahab was used to deliver her own family from destruction. If we look at verses 12 to 13, we see that Rahab intercedes on behalf of her family. Here it says, she says to the spies, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. 
She's interceding on behalf of her family. In a sense, just like Abraham did for Sodom, just like Moses for the Hebrew people, like Jesus on our behalf, or even the Holy Spirit when we don't have words to pray, God blesses those who intercede. And here we see that he honors uh, this intercession on Rahab's part. He, He answers her favorably. And third, we see that Rahab is used to spread the truth of God to her family. And she wins her family. If we skipped ahead in the story to chapter 6, after the invasion, in 623, we see this. So it says the young men, so, so the walls have come down, and Joshua says, go and get Rahab and her family. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. So the family must have believed Rahab's account, right? When she went and she said, hey, here's the deal. They're going to, like, God is going to bring deliverance through these spies that came. Like, they promised we're going to be held safe. She would have been telling them these stories. They must have believed her when she came to them because her mother and her father and her brothers and all of her relatives were in her house when the wall came down and God protected them. Now, we don't know how many Rahab saved, but I think the interesting thing to note here is that much like Rahab, when we have good news of a great salvation to share, it should be really hard for us to keep that to ourselves. In fact, scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I think in the story, we could conclude that Rahab must have had beautiful feet. God uses sinful people to carry the good news. Our sins may be different, but we too can be used to share the truth with our loved ones. So a few more questions this evening. Who in your life needs the message of the gospel? Just think about like the people that you love. Who is it that might need that message? And then how, act, how are you actively seeking to share that message with the ones you love? I would encourage you to think about that. How are you preparing and do you have plans to go and share that message? I encourage you to prep and to take that message to them this week. And so this is encouraging for us. Not only does God save people with a past, and not only does God use people with a past, but God also redeems people with a past. He redeems both the person and their story. So we've seen Rahab demonstrate her faith, and now we want to look at how God has redeemed the elements of her story. And one example of what we'll see this evening is how the common in this story becomes sacred. So you'll remember the rope of verse 15 and 18. The scarlet rope. First, it was used as a method of escape for the spies. And second, as a sign of Rahab's faithfulness for the Hebrews. And now for us, as a sign of deliverance. Right? This isn't the first time in Scripture that we see the color red uh, used as a symbol of deliverance. Remember the Passover in Egypt when the blood of the lamb was brushed on the door frames, and it served as a sign of deliverance from the loss of the firstborn. And in a similar fashion, this scarlet rope symbolizes deliverance from destruction for Rahab and her family, foreshadowing the blood of Christ, which delivers us from the punishment of our sins. Another example of Rahab, uh, of a redeeming element in Rahab's story is how the unholy in this story becomes holy. In 623, we see that Rahab and her family were put 
outside the camp. Why? Because they were unclean, right? They were not supposed to mingle with any of the sinful inhabitants of the land. So Rahab and her family are put outside the camp. They are sinful. They are unclean. They were unholy, right? Outside of the camp was reserved for what was unclean. But I think there's something here for us that also foreshadows Christ's sacrifice. So for just a moment tonight, I want to compare quickly some teaching from Leviticus and some teaching from Hebrews. We learn in Leviticus 16.27 that when a priest is making atonement for the people, that he has to carry the sin offering outside the camp to burn the bull or to burn the goat. In Hebrews uh, 13.12, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people. In Leviticus 16.28, after ceremonial cleansing, the priest could re-enter the camp and rejoin the people. In Hebrews 13.13, we are called to go out of the camp to Jesus and to bear his reproach. In Leviticus, redemption and deliverance were found in the camp. In the camp, we see tradition and law and personal effort at holiness. So there was no place for someone like Rahab inside the camp. And despite Rahab's demonstration of faith, she and her family were placed outside the camp. She provided deliverance and she's placed outside the camp, which is the location of Jesus Christ's suffering and the location of where he provided our deliverance. In Hebrews 13, 13, we are told to go to Jesus outside the camp. The suggestion is that we should not be ashamed to join him outside of our personal efforts at holiness. Ultimate deliverance didn't happen in the old system, but in the new system that Jesus Christ was establishing. It is our faith in Christ's sacrifice and not our own efforts that saves us by grace. And Rahab was found to be faithful, but she was originally placed outside the camp. And I can't help but see this as foreshadowing our deliverance in Christ Jesus. So God has redeemed this woman's story. Rahab lived in a house inside the city wall, completely surrounded by Canaanite sin. The depravity of that sin had shaped her in some very obvious ways. Whether by choice or necessity, she was living the life of a sexually immoral woman. And whether by choice or necessity, she was freely telling lies to manipulate the circumstances in her favor. But God redeemed her story. In Hebrews 11.31, we read this. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who disobeyed. God was merciful to her. And I think we can be honest with ourselves this evening, right? Don't we all know what it's like to be trapped behind the tall walls of sin? Don't we all know what it's like to be shaped by some degree by the sinful culture that surrounds us? Haven't we all attempted to manipulate circumstances in our own favor? See, I think we aren't that different from Rahab, and that's our point. We all understand that there is impending doom on the horizon. We've heard the stories that a warrior is coming to break down the walls and totally destroy the city of sin. He recognizes our need for deliverance. The destruction is certain. 
It will be final, and there will be no escape, except for those who trust in the promise of long ago. The only way of deliverance would be through the offer of the scarlet rope. Long promised to those who by faith would believe and wrap it around their waist and scale down the wall to flee outside the camp and join their Savior to follow Him to a promised city, to an eternal home, and to a future hope. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You this evening for the forgiveness of our sins. And we thank You for fulfilling the Father's promise to send a Savior to deliver us from the punishment of our sins. That in and of itself would be enough to be thankful for. But we are also thankful for your word, for the holy scriptures that reveal your plan and your gospel to us, Lord. Thank you. We also thank you for examples of real people who lived long before us that we can learn from and who sometimes we relate to and who point us to you, who encourage our faith. I pray that like Rahab, we too would be a people in transition, that we would be daily setting aside the sin that so easily entangles us, and that we would increasingly depend on the Holy Spirit to do a work of sanctification in our lives as you redeem our stories and as you work to make us holy. And we pray this through Jesus Christ.